Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Go for it. Bonus COVID-14. This is the studies since the last time we did this. We haven't done a journal studies update in a while. We actually got to travel again for our addiction stuff, so that was fun. <laughs> well, the reality is that there hasn't been a much, as much coming out lately as there was previously. I mean, right now the treatments have kind of stagnated and... We've described it perfectly with a million studies. We've described COVID perfectly. Well, it's I like mean, an oxymoron. I know, but I mean, they, there's all these papers were coming out. What could be COVID? What Basically, could, if you have any symptoms, it's COVID. Yeah, testing went crazy for a while. We've, we've all dealt with that. So these are just things that Again, have come out. if you're in the middle of a pandemic, there is only one differential. So some of these COVID. are just interesting. Yeah. If somebody's sick, do a COVID. We've learned that Whoa. here. So, uh, the first study really was uh, something in MMWR, and this was actually in the last few days. And it was just more of an interesting thing how hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine prescribing mm. patterns by provider specialty really changed back in March. I don't think I've ever prescribed hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine in my life. Although I, my dates of practice, I've I been have. a doctor for all of, you know, Five minutes. I have never prescribed it in 30 years. So anyway, prior to 2020, I'm sorry, this is your journal. No. Go for it. Go ahead. It's just just an interesting thing that when they looked at who was prescribing it, rheumatologists and dermatologists were 97% of the prescribing of these medicines. And just a measly less than 2% of this was other specialties. Fewer. Fewer. Does it say fewer? And interestingly, this went up 80-fold in those people just doing 2%. So they went from just like, uh, I think it was like 1,100 prescriptions to almost almost 75,000 prescriptions in just a month. Well, the good news is since we pretty much decided that the H drug is worthless... How much money got spent on hydroxychloroquine? I mean, the drug makers, we should have all bought stock. Uh, and then since sold. we were reading all the journal articles sold, we would have been millionaires. But anyway, now the trends are returning to pre-pandemic. So just an interesting little thing of who jumped on the bandwagon early. Yep. A bandwagon with a lot of heart comorbidity issues. Yes. Mor- mor- morbidity, not comorbidity. Anyway, moving on. Uh, journal of Med Hypothesis. Um June 27th of this year, so a bit ago. But again, talking about this post-viral, this is kind of the new sexy thing, this post-viral COVID, what happens after you've had COVID. And they're kind of comparing it to this chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis. You're not even going to say what it was called? I love the the name of this. Into the looking glass, colon, post-viral syndrome, post-COVID-19. That's the name of the article. It is. Um, Anyway, so they have a case study where, well, the whole theory is that you have all this extra pro-inflammatory agents. You have this virus that gets through the blood-brain barrier into the hypothalamus, via the olfactory pathway. (sighs) 
having lymphatic issues, snore. But the cool thing is we have a neurologist on this week, so tomorrow he can maybe explain all this. But the whole thing is they had this case study where he had, you know, way post-viral issues with severe physical fatigue, insomnia, difficulty reading with brain fog, myalgia, dry skin, increased anxiety, all these things, inflamed mid-thoracic spine, extra lymphatic, severe tenderness things. And basically the only treatment is really this manual lymphatic drainage massage type thing. But well, maybe the new thing that's coming. Yeah, and of course this was back in May, and we do have another thing that talks about May, more. this was June. Well, the patient came in oh, on May Oh, the 5th. patient. Yes. And so there has been a lot more description of this coming, but this was one of the first early reports of the post-COVID syndrome. Why don't you talk to us about this newer report yeah. then? Yeah, and this other one was, uh, it's actually the post-COVID syndrome, How Deep is the Damage? And Another was, great title. Yeah, and this was by Garg Aurora and Wig. Kumar and, Kumar. and Wig. Kumar and Wig. And basically, uh, there's just a, a letter about this that was posted uh, congratulating Helpin and colleagues on their work to identify these residual symptoms. And uh, kind of the prevalence of this is somehow around roughly 35%, although in some of the cohorts of previously hospitalized COVID patients, it's been closer to 87. Yeah, a lot of it depended on age and all those things, but anyway. Yeah, and we've heard this, I you know, certainly heard this on the on the COVID echoes that some of these people just continue to have this persistent dyspnea, Neuropsych symptoms. God, maybe you got this. Um, <laughs> and the the reasons could be many fold. And so they talk about how in this study, most of the patients that developed this were older. They tended to have been sicker, and uh, they were typically ICU patients and and got oxygen and and the whole ball of wax. They were many most of them ventilated. Well, and they had comorbidities: COPD, asthma, malignancies, cardiovascular disease. Yeah, and I think one of the problems is. You have to decide between, is this a syndrome of symptoms or is this because they have other sequelae of organ damage, you know, lung, kidney, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, because we've seen that a lot in COVID, you know, there have been people who've been ventilated for three weeks. They've been on dialysis. Some of them had ECMO. I mean, that's yeah. probably not going to feel good. And they're talking, <laughs> yeah, they're talking a little bit of how that, you know, some of these etiologies for their symptoms could be, you know, anemia or vitamin deficiencies, hypothyroidism. Because a lot of these people have had subclinical thyroid issues while well, they've been hospitalized. So it's pretty confusing. Social isolation, that could lead to some psych issues. We all have that now. And I of course, know. you're what, going on vacation tomorrow. I am. <laughs> I'm going to try and find the highest COVID place and go there. Um, so the pulmonary. Oh, is that a promise? Yeah. The pulmonary <laughs> recovery in, uh, in COVID 19 actually lags behind. Uh, this whole viral clearance, too. So that's been kind of an interesting thing. And there has been evidence that some patients have actually gotten the fibrosis late. Mm-hmm. And is that part of this COVID syndrome? Interesting. So, don't we know. might need a pulmonologist to come back on top of this neurologist. Good plan. All right. We'll get Katie on that. All right. This next study actually came out today. Who does release the studies on Labor Day? See, COVID never sleeps. Never. So this is from the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease talking about um, the reconsidering assumptions of adolescent and young adult. You're on the wrong study. I see that. It must have been on the back of the one you just threw on the floor. Um, so this is the transmission dynamics looking at this adolescent and young adult, which have a cool acronym of AYA. It's kind of like Detroit Avenue. It's like a song. Hey, yeah. Never anyway, mind. 
Don't mash your papers. Okay. <laughs> so basically, they're looking at the transmissibility and presymptomatic transmission and asymptomatic case presentations because this is usually a healthy, obviously, demographic. And what's the risk of them reinvigorating local transmission dynamics? I just love the English in that sentence. Yeah, and I'm just telling you, we're about to find that out as everybody goes back to school. As our numbers in our county start to climb, this I would last think this week, is more college focused. Adolescence. Well, that's true. High school. Yeah. I think these are the kids that are, you know, indestructible. And Correct. I think what I've seen in colleges, at least noticing, and what you just see even in just the media is that, and we all know this having been to college and med school, is that a lot of the professors are older and have a lot more comorbidities. And so I think a lot of them are fearing the professor's health with these young, indestructible young people. You just called Dr. Bolger old. Yeah, <laughs> and I think really this is, uh, you know, a lot of people have said this. That, He's without age. Yes, uh, that when everybody gets back to school here, this is going to be the biggest experiment of infectious disease of all time. So let's just see what happens. Oh, wrong one. No, no. That's the right one. But it's still, it's going to be... It's a journal article of all time. That Twilight Zone is perfect. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. So let's move on. Reminds me of the power tower at Disney World, right before uh, they drop you. Yes. <laughs> and so let's move on to the systematic and statistical review of coronavirus disease 19 treatment trials. This is more of a review. Uh, this came out actually uh, a number of weeks ago. But basically, this kind of compiled all the current data of what has gone on up until that point. And... Basically, it's nothing we didn't, we haven't said before, but we'll say it one more time. Hydroxychloroquine, no significant effect. What? There's a drug in here called Arbidol, which I don't even know what that is, but that really didn't do much either. Uh, and Lopinavir, Ritonavir. Yeah, not so much going there. Uh, and so all of these things have, have been pretty useless. Uh, remdesivir, of course, if given at the right time, uh, has had some improvement. And tocilizumab, uh, mixed results. That one has kind of come and gone. But I just love to say tocilizumab. I know. And of course, uh, I think the one that's, you know, from the recovery trial, dexamethasone, again, showing only improvement in people on oxygen or ventilation. Those people did the best. So nothing new, but they just wanted to pull it all together and say, there ain't much going. Uh, you know, you're going to have to do dexamethasone, a little remdesivir, lots of oxygen and uh, support. Anticoagulate these people. Yeah, and anticoagulate them. Like, what was that word? <laughs> so. Anyway, I was trying to find Arbidol, but it just kind of directs me to a long list of treatments of COVID that doesn't work. So hmm. anyway, next. Pediatric respiratory review from just about, just under a month ago. Multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children and adolescents. Again, one of these cool things we've been talking about for a while, but reviewing... Clinical presentation and features that this looked at 1,700 papers, 35 documented papers relating to just this, 783 individual cases of this multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children between March and June. What they found is that 55% were male, Ugh. median age of 8.6, which is really a bummer because yeah. I have two kids in that 7 to 10 common age group, both male. Yeah, the oldest one, though, 20. Yeah, three months to 20, that's a huge range, but their standard deviation range was 1 to 10, or yeah. 7 to 10, excuse me. 
Um, so high frequency of GI symptoms, 71% of them had some type of GI sy- symptom, including abdominal pain and diarrhea. Cop and respiratory were a much lower, 4.5 and 9.6 respectively. Neutrophilia, so low neutrophils, a lot of cases, 86, excuse me, 83% high CRP and 94%. So a lot mm. of patients and, you know, only about half had a positive PCR serology, but a lot of them did have, you know, a lot of other symptoms, yeah. pulmonary changes, severe illness, and most of them ICU, so pressors, some needed ECMO, some needed vents, um, IVIG, oxygen, steroids, they kind of hit the, you know, hit them all. But 1.5% of kids in the study did die. But the, the, the bottom line was how high the GI symptoms were. Yeah, you can't ignore diarrhea. I said it here first. <laughs> Don't ignore Never diarrhea. ignore diarrhea. It can be embarrassing. So. Um, We're not telling stories of our most embarrassing moments. Moving on. <laughs> All right. Asymptomatic SARS, coronavirus 2 infection. It's just a little something that. Wait, uh, invisible yet invincible. Yes. Invisible yet invincible. This is the study. This is the week of cool titled studies. Yeah. And this was actually from uh, the Journal of Infectious Disease International. Not just U.S., international. Just came out a couple days ago. So one of the things that they're talking about um, is really this whole thing that, you know, we're all expecting this uh, second wave. And and this asymptomatic people that are carry the SARS-CoV-2 are really who's driving this whole thing. And, of course, remember back when there were people even in our own area who were saying that there is no such thing as asymptomatic cases Um and it, it, again, it's confusing. Are they asymptomatic uh, or are they, you know... Pre-symptomatic, Or pre-symptomatic, The yeah. cool thing is, is this study showed that they were different. Yeah. They really expressed differences. Yeah, and younger age, of course, correlates strongly with the asymptomatic and mild infections. Again, these younger kids. And uh, God, what's the number of asymptomatic infections? They're saying 18 to 81%. And even in nursing homes, you know, there's been nursing homes where half the people were asymptomatic. So even Which at that crazy because it's the opposite of the younger kids. That would be the opposite old. So again. So you just told your house, are you moving into the nursing home? Yeah, I'm just <laughs> moving into the nursing home. They had a double, they had a, you know, big kitchen. But anyway, the asymptomatic infections are obviously going to be a key contributor in the spread. And that's what they're really looking at. I think this is interesting is that they say that asymptomatic cases should be reported in official COVID stats. Yeah, I bet all the statisticians are like, no, do not add one more column. But the thing is, you know, a lot of people are saying we need to quit testing people without symptoms because it's burning up all our reagents. So, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Good thing I don't have to make those decisions. I'm like the last person to make decisions around here. But yes. all right, next study, managing rheumatoid arthritis during COVID. So clinical rheumatology, this is yesterday. This was released. So, you know, you'd think that people who are on immunosuppressants would be more susceptible. Although what they're looking at with all this data is that these patients are not particularly susceptible to the COVID infection. And if infected, do not have significantly worse outcomes. A lot of the meds that we have been treating or at least attempting to treat COVID with are things like the H drug, dexamethasone, tocilizumab. These patients are already on. So what they say, kind of the bottom line is patients who are already on the meds are not, again, found to have increased risk of acquiring the infection. If they're on a stable dose of steroid and or DMARD, disease-modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. Oh, nice. 
continue the same dose unless they get infected, in which case they might be temporarily stopped, yeah, especially this, if they're on methotrexate or leflunamide. This is kind of embarrassing because I actually prescribed like four really big bubbles for people on these meds. So I surrounded their house with plastic. Oh, I was like, where are you well, going with early, big early, bubbles? Yeah, early on they were, of course, thinking these people... So we're going to surround their house with plastic where the sun's going to make it a greenhouse and then they're going to all die of some weird carcinogenic effect of plastic. No, they probably get fungus. Anyway, but, so <laughs> you can start high-dose steroids, DMARDs, or biological biologics if you can, but really... I'm just saying that early on everybody thought these people were really in trouble. And as we it did. turns out... I mean... Yeah, it turns out we can take away the bubble. It's well, probably good. I mean, it's not like you want them to get sick, but I'm Although, just Although, you know, the bubble at this point, since it's getting cold in Minnesota, might be nice. Yeah. Well, next. This is something that kind of popped up yesterday that I heard somebody talking about, and so I kind of looked into it. We haven't seen, um, you know, Actos, which a generic would be... Pioglitazone. Oh, nice. Pioglitazone. And there have been some people suggesting that this might be a drug that could be used. Uh, I don't believe it's being used by most, but uh, I think that really the key is that uh, it's something that really is anti-inflammatory, and it's the question is whether or not that would be useful. Well, because it's usually used in things like diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disorders. Anyway, you are being so loud. Sorry. Um, and so the, the inflammation of metabolic syndrome in people with high lipids, they all get improved by things like pioglitazone, that maybe there should be a clinical trial with this drug as a support therapy, not a treatment, a supportive adjunct adjunctive. We're not telling the president to take it or anything. We're just saying. Right. But there that are it, people mm, suggesting it should be studied because right. of its anti-inflammatory properties. Right. Just because, yeah. Yeah, and there was actually it. one study, another study that was actually in diabetes metabolic syndrome. I didn't even know that was a... Uh, a journal. Uh, this was by, man, I can't say that guy's name. Jagat? Yeah, whatever. It's or tough one. No, Mugh Mugh Jagat. Jagat. Yeah. Jagat. Jagat. Anyway. But he said basically that it's probably more potential for benefit than harm. And then obviously if people are taking it, they should keep taking it if they're diabetic. But again, he felt that probably we should be studying this we just to be see. Studying. There are no, and that we could find on any actual reputable source Google doesn't count to that. This should be a treatment. So next one, also from Journal of Diabetics. Um, this is a quite old one, but basically the clinical characteristics of diabetic patients with COVID. Basically, the conclusion was when they looked at 199 patients admitted to Wuhan, so this is back to the beginning, January 24th and March 15th, they actually studied the difference in diabetic patients and non-diabetic patients. What they found is the diabetics were older, but they had a higher fasting plasma glucose, as you'd expected. But they also had higher D-dimers, as well as other inflammatory things. So basically, the, the takeaway with that was that patients with diabetes who got COVID had significantly higher mortality than those who were not diabetic. Um, and higher, higher D-dimers and lower no, and li No, higher lymphocyte counts. Oh, wait. Lymphocyte lower. counts less than. Jeez. What they didn't say in here, which is actually at the bottom in the small print, is that two of the non-diabetic patients were actually pangolins. <laughs> okay. That's well, not the true. good news is they were. They should have been llamas, not pangolins. Speaking of animals, I'm sure you want to do this. Study. Oh my god, Go this was great. It. 
Mamalama, so, red pajama. Yeah, yeah, Give so, us your nano antibodies so you and avoid not, the drama. Like just, how I did that. Yeah, that so good. what you may not know is English that major. other animals actually produce antibodies much like we do. Didn't know that. But some animals, such as llamas, produce this type that's uh, only about a 25% the size of a typical human antibody. A nanobody. Yeah, that's they're called nanobodies. They're single domain antibodies or nanobodies. And these have a lot of features that make them, well, of interest. So the bottom line on this is that they've got these these nanobodies from these llamas, say that fast, three times. And uh, researchers have actually engineered this antibody to prevent SARS from actually entering the cells. So yeah, they can actually give this with an inhaler directly into the lungs, which is like super cool. Llamas have a hard time with that, but people can do that. <laughs> Why would they need to inhale their own antibodies? Oh, okay. But yeah, University of Texas combined with the Belgium research team. This is cool. They've actually studied it in SARS and MERS. Hmm. So anyway, research were published in May, actually, as far back as then. But I like this quote by McClellan, one of the researchers. This is one of the first antibodies known to neutralize SARS-CoV-2, which is weird to me. If this was published in Cell in May 5th of 2020, why are we now talking about Actos and our next study, Oleander, but we're not talking about nanoantibodies? Well, what I'm confused by is what makes you look at a llama and go, I wonder if that thing's got antibodies like a human. I bet there's some... Llama researcher who studies llamas that knew there were the nanoantibodies. It's more likely somebody would think, I wonder if they taste like chicken. But anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Oleander. Oleander. So this was a big thing that people were wanting to to figure out is using oleander to treat COVID. But here's the topic of title. Oleander extracts for COVID-19. That's a hard no, experts say. So this is a hard stop. It's beautiful in landscaping, Mediterranean shrub, but all parts of this plant are poisonous. So poisonous and healthy just are opposites in case you're my kindergartner and you need to learn that. So it's, it's a uh, toxic cardiac glycoside. So Kind of like digoxin. Yeah. So if you have oleander poisoning, you might have, again, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain, loss of appetite. Yeah, that's the first symptom. And then you know you have all the central nervous system issue. And then, can I read this quote too? Yes. There has been a chasm between a single in vitro study. So one but one person decided to study this very low, 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 low dose. And any use in humans outside of a protocol. People should be cautioned about the distance and the need to avoid such remedies unless part of a credible research project. So unless you're enrolled in a research study on Oleander, please do not go eat in the plant. Or smoking it or dabbing it or whatever else you might want to do with it. Just don't do it. (laughs) Just don't. Hard stop. And last but not least, NIH research matters. Immune cells for the common cold may recognize SARS-CoV-2. So bottom line, hmm, some of us have gotten colds before. (laughs) No way. Yes, and these colds occasionally will cause you to make an antibody, which may actually recognize SARS-CoV-2. There's some thought that maybe because everybody doesn't have the same colds over their lifetime that some colds may help people have milder cases. Nobody knows. Well, yeah, 20 to 50% who hadn't been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 showed T cell responses to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yeah. So, yeah, which is cool. This could help explain why some people show milder symptoms of disease while others get severely sick. 
So here's my question. Here's my question. I had to say that so I can give you the question. Okay. Do pediatricians get COVID less severely than internists? Actually, you could study them and their staffs. You heard it here first. I just suggested it. Their staff and every pediatrician should be tested. I think I said the pediatrician part. Okay, you added the staff. staff. But I think maybe when you go back and look at percentages of healthcare workers, I think there's some areas. I, again, Wuhan, this was new, so they didn't know what even kind of to do, but that rhymed. But if you look at places like New York, which, yes, of course, there were a lot of healthcare workers that got ill, but mostly the people who worked in healthcare that were more the orderlies and the food service people got ill and had morbidity and mortality. But I wonder about the direct patient care where, you know, do you remember starting residency? You got sick all the flipping time. Uh, I guess the uh, jury's out on that one. We'll have to wait for the next study. I think that's all we have, except we have echoes coming up this week that are great. Yeah, so tomorrow we actually have a neurologist coming, which is super cool. We've been trying to get a neurologist to come and speak to us for, you know, however many weeks we've been doing covid since March. So I'm really excited about that tomorrow. And then Wednesday on the Addiction Echo, we have Susan Blue. I can't say her name, but she's coming back to talk to us again about the whole basically trauma-informed care and resilience building in people with um, historical trauma, especially the Native communities and addiction. So she was so fabulous the last time. She. There were a lot of people thought that was the best talk we ever had. Yeah, so, which so is come sad because we've given how many talks? Uh, 200. Yeah. And then following Tuesday, we will have um, Sakina Nakvi, Dr. Sakina Nakvi, coming back and talking, talking more about this post-acute, after you get out of the hospital, after you've had COVID. So hopefully we can talk a little bit about this post-viral stuff we started with today. So so let's let Battle Legs finish this, and I'm going on vacation. Guess what? Just me hosting this week. This will be so sweet. It'll be lame. But the cool thing is, I'm sorry, tomorrow, COVID Echo podcast, it's the first podcast we've done without you. It'll be me and Aaron Foss, our nurse, so it'll just be, we'll see how that dynamic goes. Uh, Kurt's not happy with Yeah, we'll see. So (laughs) thanks for uh, listening, and here's Battle Legs. Moving right along in search of good times and good news with good friends you can't could become a habit Opportunity knocks one Let's reach out and grab it yeah. Together we'll nab it We'll hitchhike bus or yellow cabin Cabin? Moving right along We're loose and fancy free Getting there is half the fun Come share it with me Moving right along We'll learn to share the load We don't need a map To keep the show on the road Along, we found life on a highway, and your way is my way. So trust my navigation. California, here we come. The pie in the skyland, palm trees and warm sand. Though sadly we just left Rhode Island. We did what? Screaming, moving right along. Hey LA, where have you gone? Someone's unfed, just wearing Saskatchewan. Moving right along. You take it, you know best. Hey, I've never seen the sun come up in the west.
a feather We're in this together And we know where we're going Movie stars with flashy cars And life with the top down The storm in the big town Yeah, the storm is right, should it be snowing? I don't think so Moving right along Why see signs of pen? Yeah, welcome on the same post That says come back again Moving right along Nice town Loose and fancy free Ready for the big time Is it ready for me? Moving right 